Hello, and welcome to another edition of The Brand Called You. So this is a podcast and a video chat in which we talk to some of the country's most fascinating thought leaders. And of course, today is no exception. Um, my first guest is Susan Fader today. However, I want to introduce how it is I met her. So I was invited a couple of years ago to be a guest speaker at a qualitative research conference in Savannah, Georgia. I also didn't know what qualitative research was, to be honest. But basically, um, it's that field where specialists uh, go uh, help companies figure out what consumer insights are. And they do it by asking a host of questions. They have all their techniques down. And I was sort of talking about how you could use storytelling to garner insights. But to be perfectly honest, I kind of could see in the audience, for lack of a better word, a lot of geeks and nerds and data-driven people. And I kind of thought, my talk was futile until I suddenly spotted Susan in the audience. She was this curly-haired, wide-eyed woman, and we we couldn't stop talking afterwards. And I was absolutely fascinated by her approach to qualitative research. Um, she does so many interesting techniques, um, among other things, something that she calls narrative economics, using narratives and stories to transform thinking and and just turn everything upside down. But she also does a lot more. Uh, she helps companies to rethink their biases, to transcend their data and really access their emotional intelligence, which, as many of you know, is often missing from um, market research and, and corporate thinking. Um, basically, I would say uh, Susan is um, a business transformationalist. She really helps them turn their thinking upside down. Um, she's um, not only contributes to a host of, of industry publications, and, and, and she's a hugely sought-after speaker at conferences, but she's now expanded her work to include business consulting in a way that is really fascinating. So I'll let her do most of the talking, um, and um, I, I'll start by, by saying hello, Susan, and welcome to the, to the program. We had so much fun in Savannah, especially... Yeah, because we had a day after the conference where we were actually able to bond and we both have this incredible love of storytelling. And it's not in the world of market research, storytelling is thought of as an output of how you deliver the findings and it has to have a beginning, middle and end. But we are just people who love to hear other people's stories. And both of us, we connect it because we can we can transform anyone into a storyteller. Um, yeah, and 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 one of the things that I I love about you is that you know, you and I understand that storytelling isn't necessarily just about output, as you say, or performance. You know, today we consider storytelling like somebody standing on a stage and telling a story, but actually, what you and I are very interested in, and and I want to hear more about how you got into this, is, you know, the use of storytelling to really transcend facts and identify what is at the heart of people, which of course is everything in Consumer Insights. So I'm, I'm really curious how, have you always been involved in this or did it kind of come to you as you got into the field? Well, it's an evolution. The thing that I always puzzled me, especially when I got into the industry, is if you think about it, um, research is very structured. You have categories and then you have questions after it. And if it's a quantitative, you know, it's a very standard question, answer, question, answer. You might have two or three open ends. And in qualitative, it's 
the joke is you have a 15 page guide that you have to do in an hour and a half. So there's this intensity of belief that you have to ask questions. I believe that format is really very structured. It's like putting horse blinders on. You're telling people we're gonna talk about this and then they say, okay, they only want me to talk about this. So I'm not gonna talk about anything else. So I visualize all things that businesses wanna know as a long hallway with doors and the doors are numbered. And each door is a subject matter with questions behind it. And the way market research is structured now and business intelligence is we take people by the hand and we walk to door number one, and then we walk to door number two and three. So we're guiding the conversation saying the beginning is, is door number one. However, they might start at door number five and go to door number two and then go to a place that we hadn't even thought of. But what's most important is when people tell a story, they don't always begin at the beginning, go to the middle and go to the end. They decide where they're gonna start. They decide what words, adjectives, adverbs they're gonna use. You're gonna see what they leave out. You're gonna see what they add. So if they start with a story, they are contextualizing. And therefore you can have a conversation based off of how they perceive the world. And you're not leading them because if you're talking about a subject that they don't even bring up, then say, oh, it's interesting you didn't mention this. But if I started, what do you think about X? They'll have an opinion. It's interesting you're saying that because I found that in my work in the corporate world as a story strategist, companies will say to me, they'll basically say to me, we want you to do a storytelling training, but what they really want, they come with, they'll basically say, here's what we're looking for. Now you storytelling to get at it. In other words, they kind of have the answer they want and they want you to somehow flush it out. But what I think you're suggesting is that you and this is something companies really hate, is that you you actually are willing to understand that the answer that you get might be absolutely nothing like what they're seeking, that you have to be prepared to improvise and go in a direction that's totally different, which is very, really revolutionary. For so there, are, there are two parts to that. Before you even get to storytelling with people, you have to get clarification of what is the objective of the, re, of the business challenge. And a lot of times people come in and say, this is our business challenge and we need the answers to these questions. And then you have to have the conversation, well, what's driving this? How are you gonna use the information? And a lot of times you get, well, it'll be good to know. Good to know is not a reason to pursue something around a business strategy. So I sometimes on a project can spend a week or two just working with people to formalize what's the one primary objective of what we're doing. And the trick is to have everyone who is the, the client in the room at the same time. And I had, a, I had a financial service client who I did a lot of qualitative research for, and they reached out to me and they said, we've been dealing with this business challenge for six months and we, there are 14 different people involved in it and we can't get any consensus. Can you fly down and have a meeting and maybe get consensus? So within two hours of having everyone in the room, I had agreement on an objective. And the reason they hadn't is because they have these laundry lists of questions 
that they think have to be answered, but that's people's way of they think it can help them. And I'm a great believer in unaided, which is what storytelling is, where they share it. So once you have a clear why you're doing whatever you're doing in business, then you can have a story. And then if the person leaves out the component you're interested in, you can say why, and I, ha I have my classic examples. I was doing a study for P&G on fabric softeners and they wanted to come out with new fabric softeners. So they want to start the conversation with what do you like and don't like about you know, the fabric softener? And these, these were people who were heavy users of their fabric softener. But I said, no, fabric softener resides in the world of laundry. I wanna hear their story of laundry, what they like about laundry and what they don't like about laundry. And guess what? A number of people didn't mention fabric softener, even though they were heavy users. So what it is, then I would bring up, well, tell me about fabric. Oh yeah, I use fabric softeners. Now, if you're doing new products or new line extensions of a fabric softener, if you start out, tell me about fabric softener, it's one frame of mind, you know, the, the horse blinders. But if you said, tell me a story of laundry and you didn't mention it, you have a different perspective on when you're going to evaluate stuff. We, we actually never, we never exchanged the story before, but I had a, a job with uh, International Flavors and Fragrances years ago. Um, they were looking at how the scent affected laundry you using. <laughs> but what I remember so distinctly about that job was that laundry what I realized was it was it was everything but laundry. It was about chores. It was about a sense of family. It was um, it was about so much as you say contextualizing it. It was about so much bigger than the laundry itself. And I wonder if that sort of also what what you find is that you're trying to look beyond the object to something more emotionally meaningful. The emotional component is so important and that tends to get lost when businesses are laser focused on getting answers and asking questions. And that's going back to stories, why you have to create a framework. And that's, I've, I'm very good at turning nearly anyone into storyteller within minutes because I have uh, certain techniques but you get the emotion when a person tells a story and it kind of brings them into the situation. I did um, a study for uh, a credit card uh, for a department store and they were trying to revamp their rewards program. And what they wanted to know, they had a list of like 20 different rewards that they thought would be great and they wanted people's reaction. Normally a structure is you give, you recruit people who, who shop in your store, who have your card or don't have your card, and you go to them list and you ask them what they think. But that's not in the moment. So what I did is to get them in the frame of mind and to have them tell me a story is, okay, I create a situation. You have to go shopping at X and Y store today because you need an outfit for tomorrow. I want you to write down six or seven distinctly different things that are going through your head. And Love within that. 15 seconds, and this was an in-person group, I could tell who liked shopping and who didn't, and they weren't even saying anything. Some people actually began to perspire. Other people were smiling. So they hadn't even told me a story, but these people were transported into that situation of having to have to go shopping at that store. 
And then I had them, they were able to tell me a story because they had written some stuff down. I heard that. But then when I shared this list of rewards, it was, they were in the frame of mind of what really is going to solve my problem. For some people, it was the joy of shopping and they wanted rewards that tied to the joy of shopping. For others, it was just the aggravation and fear and frustration. And they just wanted something that was going to make their life easier. I mean, you've talked about this in some of your writing um, that often, though, your discovery is at war with the marketing department. Uh, you know, that you're, you know, they're, they're, they're also doing their own research, right? So I'm just really curious if you've had that experience before where you have to, you know, shock or surprise or convince um, different areas of a company that your insights are actually more accurate. So it's not war. It's more surprise. It's very, that's a very, very different thing where if you're called in for a business challenge and trying to, to, to come up with a, a, a solution, part of one of the frustrations for me in the world of research is a lot of people are focusing on data gathering, that we're going to get a whole bunch, we're just going to gather the information, then we'll figure it out. And for me, just like storytelling is so important, the ability to listen is very important. And people, don't listen and don't observe. So just the way I just told you the story of shopping and I could just see people's body reactions, you know, perspiring or joy, and they hadn't even shared, they hadn't even said anything. I did a study uh, for a pharmaceutical company on an implantable uh, contra birth control contraceptive. And they had introduced, and this was a very effective, they had all the clinical trials, but do, they found doctors were really not prescribing it. And so they thought they had a messaging problem where doctors didn't understand the benefits of it. And this was a study that I actually conducted for them in a number of, of countries. And one of the things, again, I like a story up front. I don't want to just start going into questions. I, I said, uh, tell me, you know, there's a whole bunch of birth control options. If this were something you're going to talk to a patient about, how would you, what would you say? How would you describe it? So they, they did, but then I noticed they were touching their butts, which was kind of confusing. If you notice when I talked about it, I touched my arm. Yeah. Well, the reason for that is this was, uh, needed to be, to be effective, need to be implanted in the arm. However, so I, I was kind of confused. So I, after a couple of times I asked why they said, well, you know, women don't like the bump on their arm. They, they want it here. And, you know, with other implantables, you, you can do it there. Well, this one wasn't as effective if it was there. And the other problem is this was a subcutaneous not intramuscular. And when they were doing it in the tush, they were doing intramuscular. So they didn't have a messaging problem about benefits. They had an insertion problem because the doctor said, hey, I know it's recommended in the arm, but others you can do in the tush. So that we just thought you, you could do that. And if you're going to do there, you have to do intramuscular. So what's the difference? So that was the big insight, but I continued to do the messaging. You know, I was in contact with the client. Then I said, when it came time for the results, 
can I even present that? They said, yes, that's the major finding. What you found that it was an insertion problem. Also talk about the messaging, but that's so secondary. That was, so it's not war, it's where sometimes you uncover something. And that's what, that's the beauty of having people tell you a story and not asking question and answer, not assuming you know the answer, observing and also listening. I mean, you are the first guest that's talked about the tush in any form whatsoever, which I have to say is delightful. Um, but you you have a, a couple of things that you do that I, I absolutely don't understand. Like, I don't understand what cognitive demographics are. Um, okay. Can you explain to me? All right. So um, when you think about companies and their customers, they could have hundreds of thousands, millions of customers, and you have to kind of group them in, in segments, otherwise it's absolute chaos. And so companies are set up by business units. And so they define their customers based on the needs of the business units so that they'll be able to market to them and talk to them. And you have traditional demographics, you know, age, how frequently they buy it, whether they're, they're in a relationship or have children and what's their income, which are very, very important. And then companies say attitudinal, like you like to talk to people or you don't, you know, things like that. But it's the way companies segment might not be the way people self-perceive. And the way people self-perceive themselves and how they affiliate with other people, you know, the group that they see as their own determines how they're gonna make a decision. There's, there's also the, what I call the value hierarchy, which is, they're basically, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs was very rigid. You had to do the, um, food and shelter before you went on to the next one. But the value is, is very, fluid based on the person. For someone, family might be most important. And if their company is moving, they're not going to move if all their relatives live in an area. You know, sometimes you say with the Rust Belt, why don't these people move? They have $47.50 an hour. Company's willing to move them. If they stay, they're going to be in unemployment, no job. But if their personal hierarchy is, is, is family is most important, they're not going to move. If it wasn't as important, they do move. So I'll give you an example. Um, let's take women, you know, the, you know, mothers. They could be the same age, uh, they can live next door, they could dress alike, they could have the same income, you know, the same number of kids and buy the product and use the product as same. So companies would say these people are the same. But if I said, well, Let's ask them their mom motto. And one mom says, I go with the flow. And the other mom says, I'll do anything for my kids. They're seeing their roles as mothers as very differently. And they're going to make purchase decisions very differently. And so that's what cognitive de demographics is. It's about how they self-perceive in the value hierarchy, and then also how they perceive their role. But you're getting to very different outcomes than your colleagues, I imagine. I am recognizing things that helps you contextualize the findings because sometimes you get people who you think are alike and they're having totally different reactions. But if you've contextualized and see that their worldview or their role, they perceive their roles differently, then you'll under understand it will not be as confusing.
I mean, I think what you do so well is see beyond the obvious. Um, but in order to do that, I know from my own work, you have to have extra time. All of these techniques require time. And I feel that that's the biggest thing that companies are at war with is, you know, time is money. They don't want to take the time, even in the way you probably deliver your data. Am I right? So actually, I save companies time by my techniques because what happens I, by doing the unaided stories up front, a lot of times they're touching on mm. a good 70 to 80% of the content of what you have to cover. Uh-huh. And you're kind of priming them because before I'm gonna show them concepts or, or things like that or ideas or new products, I've got them really in the frame of mind to think about things. So when we get to where we need feedback on on concepts or on advertising ideas or new products, people are giving very detailed answers as opposed to if we had gone in question answer, go, oh, I like it. Then I have to say, well, tell me a little more about what you like about it. Oh, the color. But if I have primed them, they'll come back. Oh, you know what's first attracted to me? The blue. The blue is very, very unique and reminds me of blueberries and I really like blueberries. So I think this is gonna be a really juicy and tasteful thing. That's a very different type of answer. So I know it's hard to believe. And the first time I do it with clients are like, how is this gonna be possible? And I say, let me do it. And they go, wow, you covered so much more even though you gave a third of this to not asking questions, just doing the stories because you get the richness of when people share their perspective, but you also prime them. So they're in the frame of mind to give you mm-hmm. very detailed insights. Yeah, I don't think everybody has the ability to, to see what you see, the, the radar, your hyper radar. And I'm actually really curious, did you always have this? I mean, how did you come to these skills? Was it something in your, like, I, I didn't really ask you about your background and was it some a very story rich home or were you always sensitive to it or did you did you do a two you know a 380 when you got into the field um i think part of it is that i've always been a reader i've always found i've i've enjoy, i enjoy fiction and nonfiction and i just like this idea of of being transported and seeing different perspectives and visualize. Like when I read a book and I visualize what the characters are and then after when I go to a movie and it's just so different, but it's just you're, you, you're, creating, you're creating a world. So I've always been interested in people's stories. So you're you're really you're really taking a literary approach to qualitative research in a way. You probably see see diff- different people in the room as characters and in, in a big large plot that are working together. I'm not not really because I'm trying what I'm trying to do to be in the moment and yeah. really see each individual. So if um sometimes you I would have a group discussion. Sometimes it could just be an individual. When when it's an individual, I feel like I'm more like a chameleon in terms of how fast I speak, what type of words I use, Hmm. um, adapting to things that they might've said. Cause some people you just have to go slower with. And some people you could really be energetic and body language and stuff like that and get engagement. So you have to recognize 
who it is you're having. And again, it's a conversation. It's not, we're doing research. We're not gathering data. We're not getting answers to questions. You're having a conversation. And if you think about that, conversations are where you get ahas, like things come out of the left field and just interesting, uh, interesting information. Did you ever run up against a, a client who had no time for your technique at all, was, was adamantly opposed? Uh, what I have always said is, let me do the first one. And if it doesn't work, I'll do it your way. And I'll give you a makeup for free. And I've never had to do it. And it's like, I've gotten a lot of, I, I, did, I couldn't believe it, it really was going to happen. But you actually got more out of your the way you do a conversation. We actually got so much more than if we had done the traditional question and answer. And I, I mean, also when I'm, I have so many questions for you, but um, you are now expanding your your role. You're not just doing qualitative research anymore. You're now right. doing business consulting. And I, I think it, in my mind, it feels like a natural fit to sort of help people think about things differently. But maybe you could tell me a little bit about what you're up to in that area. So, uh, so that's uh, leveraging off what I, I do in the qualitative, where I said to you earlier that sometimes you spend a week or two just contextualizing, you know, the st starting line. You know, everyone talks about agile and, you know, we got to jump in and we got to do it. And I always say, let's spend the time up front and whatever time I need up front, I can take off from the end. Mm -hmm. So if you have a time period, I'll write the report faster. I'll feel faster. That's not an issue. But if we don't get clarity, and just the example of, of with 14 people in a room, you know, we're six months, they, they couldn't do it. So I have had clients who are having me come in and just help them strategize, just to contextualize what it is, because you have so many stakeholders and stakeholders have different needs. They speak different languages, which gets us to taxonomy. There's too much assumption that uh, common terms mean the same thing. And if mm -hmm. you don't clarify that upfront, you're having a conversation and you, you, you think connect and I'll get, give you another example. I do a lot of work in the uh, field of financial services and financial services, uh, so generally what I do is I say at the very beginning, I want you to write down every conceivable thing that you think is associated with financial services and you let you think for a moment too. And then I have, and then I go, how many of you put down insurance? See, I blank look, you didn't put down insurance, right? So it's like 80, 90% of people don't put down insurance. But if I had said at the very beginning, hey, Financial services includes insurance. You go, yeah, of course, right? Right. You would have so I do a two-step with taxonomy. I say, I want people to define it first, then I define it, and then I clarify. See, most of you left out insurance. However, for this conversation, it's going to include insurance. It's much stickier if they went through the process, recognized that they had a definition that wasn't. Uh, all-inclusive. And then I say, include it. If I had just said, include it, you the, your reaction of, of course you knew that, so you would have forgotten, but you have to make it sticky. So taxonomy, making sure terms are the same, that's something I also do 
in the strategy where you had 14 people in a room, they thought they were talking about the same thing. They were using what they thought were common terms. So I had them define, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? And we got clarity because if you think terms mean different things, like it includes insurance or it doesn't, you, you have a disconnect. Have, you don't even realize it. Yeah. Your, your hyper radar and your very keen listening skills, do you find that um, it, you, you now integrate that into other aspects of your life, like personal, familial? Does it, does it end up transforming other areas of your life? Um, the thing when my kids were little, they're like, Ma, don't, don't, be, don't be a focus group. We're not a focus group. You know, so sometimes they would say that, but I, I try not to. I try to disconnect. I do love this observing. Um, we actually, a couple of weeks ago, drove down to a music f- festival in Tennessee and went and you camp. And one of the things that I just love is I'm in a world, I, I'll meet people who I never would have met in my normal life. Uh, we went to one in Delaware and the pe- people next door to us were naval uh, officers who worked on an aircraft carrier I mean, I would never have met them and I spent three days next to them. So that I just, I seek out things where, you know, I, I can have conversations and meet with people who I normally wouldn't meet, wouldn't meet outside my bubble. You got to get outside of your bubble. Are you writing any, are you working on any new publications now? So I just had an article published in uh, the July issue of Quirks magazine, uh, which is the largest uh, market research magazine. And that was in conte- on contextual intelligence. And that was the idea of where I was talking before about Agile, where I really see three stages of, of research. Uh, there's the starting point, there's uh, the execution, the analytical. And right now everyone's focused, let's get in the field as fast as possible. Let's analyze, let's use AI, let's use tech, but they're not doing, do we have the right uh, baseline assumptions? And I do, I've created this imagery of a race and jumping the gun that everyone's on running it and breaking the tape but no one is thinking about how the strategizing, how they're going to run it. A marathon runner never runs the race the same. You have to think about the weather. You have to think about all the stuff. So that this article goes into great detail of uh, contextualizing your uh, and, and rethinking your baseline assumptions. And a lot of times people just assume what we did before we can carry, but you have to keep refreshing your baseline assumptions. I mean, I, I bet COVID changed a lot of those baseline assumptions, gave people maybe more time to reframe or rethink or- no, it, made, it made people, again, because of technology and AI, people want things faster. We oh. can turn this around in a day. We can do, it's, it's, it's the, I say you're jumping the gun if you don't re, uh, reframe and refocus your baseline assumptions. Again, it's in Quirks Magazine, the July, July 2022 issue and it's on contextual intelligence. I mean, I, I could go on and on forever. I can't believe we've already just whipped through this time, but I'm so excited about your ideas, your work, and um, I can't wait to see where you go with this. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing just a very small sliver of your brain with us. Oh, this was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank no, you you're so welcome. Much. I, I'm, I'm a fan, as you know, so I can't wait to, to see more. 
Thanks, sweetheart. Bye. All the best. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.